This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. All right. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to the library, and we're going to go and get started. Uh, it's our pleasure today to welcome uh, author and uh, professor at Columbia College, Dan Danilo. Um, we have a copy of his book here in the library for checkout if you're interested. There's also copies at the Moraine Valley Bookstore. Um, this event is part of our One Book, One College event where we're talking about 1984. And uh, Dan is going to help us broaden that discussion and take us in some new directions by helping weave 1984 into the broader picture of science fiction and film and uh, some ideas that that start in, in Orwell's book and, and go from there. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dan. Thanks. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for coming on this almost winter day. Um, let's see, where's the... Um, so today, my talk centers on science fiction visions of social control, surveillance, and the repression of freedom and how that vision has evolved to reflect the development of technology. I refer to this subgenre of science fiction as techno-totalitarian or dystopian science fiction. This type of science fiction seen recently in movies like The Matrix, Minority Report, and V for Vendetta, in novels like Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake, and in the television show Battlestar Galactica, is powerfully relevant to our own times, which are marked by terrorism, permanent war, secret prisons, and issues of torture, surveillance, and the expansion of presidential power. My book, Technophobia, there's a picture of it over there, centers on science fiction's attitude towards several specific real-world technologies and their impact on our humanity. I show that most science fiction presents a predominantly negative or suspicious view of artificial intelligence, robotics, bionics, biotechnology, the Internet, virtual reality, and nanotechnology. One of the reasons for this technophobic vision will be the subject of my presentation today. Technology is the primary weapon through which governments impose their ideology. Overall, I believe that science fiction matters, that the best science fiction is not just escapist entertainment, but often serves as social criticism. In fact, dystopian science fiction might be the toughest, most direct form of political protest our culture has yet devised. Usually pessimistic, but sometimes inspiring, it condemns authoritarian governments that repress freedom. A quick look at history shows that dystopian fiction is a relatively new genre created by the 20th century's distinctive nexus of industrialized life, rising corporate power, truly global reach, and massive military destruction, all linked by the rapid development of technological weapons um, used for social control. H.G. Wells, in his, 19, or his 1896 novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau, originated the notion of a dictatorial authority that exercises ideological and technological control over a population. The Island of Dr. Moreau shows that humanity's brutal nature, combined with powerful surgical and mind control technologies, will impede and ultimately prevent evolutionary, ethical, or social progress. 
Um, the first cinematic version of Wells' novel was made in 1933, and it's called The Island of Lost Souls. It starred Charles Lawton as the tyrannical mad scientist Dr. Moreau, who rules over a remote South Pacific island and employs advanced techniques of vivisection, hypnotism, and behavioral conditioning to mold humans into animals, um, that is, human-beast hybrids. So we're going to look at a, a clip from that. That's Moreau on the left there with the uh, modified Hitler mustache. That's probably not an accident. Can you hear back there? Those of you fans of the band Devo might recognize that the title of their first album, Are We Not Men, derives from Wells' novel. Moreau uses imprisonment, torture, and punishment to impose his version of positive values. As in Iraq today, this type of authoritarianism often engenders a counterforce or insurgency.
Moreau's Island was science fiction's first vision of a scientifically dominated society. For all of Moreau's dissecting, splicing, conditioning, and torturing, his grand scheme to direct evolution goes awry. Moreau's desire to create perfect humans required the destruction and surgical reconstruction of their bodies and the enslavement of their minds. The only other pre-World War I literary dystopia was E.M. Forster's 1909 novella, The Machine Stops, which influenced later pessimistic Machine Age hells, including the movie Metropolis and Huxley's Brave New World. In The Machine Stops, Forster expressed several significant technophobic fears. Technology mediates all human relationships, compels pathological reliance, and dominates humans psychologically, spiritually, and physically. Taking off from the machine stops, cinema's first vision of a futuristic dystopia was Fritz Lang's 1926 silent movie, Metropolis. And we'll look at a clip from that. Oops. Metropolis was also inspired by the skyline of New York City, the mechanized cataclysm of World War I, and the German Expressionist art movement. In Metropolis, city of the future, a wealthy corporate dictator rules the state with economic and technological power, including surveillance. Metropolis combines Forster's notions of anti-human machines with the rise of techno-industrialism and corporate capitalism, as authoritarian ideologies that collaborate with scientific and governmental forces to repress human values. During the change of shift, ordered columns of hunched over submissive spiritless workers tramp forward with rhythmic steps Human motion stylized into a mechanical pattern that reflects their domination by machines. The human slaves live underground, while the wealthy elite, including the son of the corporate CEO, live high above ground and cavort in decadent luxury. They're cavorting there. Far below, the workers run the dangerous machines that sustain the city and enrich the co controlling corporate patriarchy. Exaggerating the mechanical rhythms of the Ford assembly line, the workers are dominated and even enslaved by time. Machines resemble giant clocks whose hands must be moved periodically by the workers. The human body programmed to a temporal schedule demanded by the technology's operation. Further, it shows that human life depends on technology, which does not always work perfectly and sometimes comes back to destroy humans.
when the son of Metropolis's capitalist dictator investigates the workers' level, he sees a vision of techno-horror. A procession of cringing workers marching into the glowing, gaping mouth of a machine god, Moloch, who systematically devours the workers as human sacrifices. Metropolis shows that the machine, controlled by corporate powers, represses freedom and individuality by requiring humans to become part of its apparatus, such that men are conflated with technology, forced to comply with its rhythms, and consumed by its ravenous expansion. The rise of Soviet communism provided the first real-world model of a techno-dystopia. Its repressiveness inspired Russian novelist Yevgeny Zamyatin's 1920 novel We. We presents a portrait of a mechanized society where it is believed that happiness is incompatible with freedom and where life's actions are prescribed down to the minute, even the pace of, and rhythm of chewing food. The people of We live isolated from nature in weather-controlled cities, inhabiting houses with crystal walls whose transparency facilitates surveillance. Ruled by the well-doer who executes the disloyal with a disintegrating machine, the technologized totalitarian state strives to create mathematically infallible happiness. We, combined with the expansion of totalitarianism during World War II and the growth of surveillance technology inspired Orwell's new vision of techno-totalitarianism in 1984. It envisions the ultimate social nightmare that defines the dystopian genre. In 1984, war never ends, so science concentrates on weapons development and mind control. Totalitarianism is the major evil, but the monstrous world of 1984 could not exist without technology. The machine serves Big Brother electric racks, helicopters, and telescreens that receive and transmit simultaneously provide instruments of torture, control, surveillance, and propaganda. Orwell fuses the ideology of totalitarianism with the ideology of the machine. Orwell was convinced that technological progress is a swindle because, in his words, it will create a paradise of little fat men. One of the strongest 1984-inspired movies is THX 1138, the first feature by Star Wars creator George Lucas. It describes a monstrous technological superstate where science, religion, and government combine to achieve utopia by engineering obedience, repressing emotions, extinguishing creativity, and crushing individuality. THX 1138 is the name of the main character played by a young Robert Duvall. THX works in a nuclear plant with a job that seems somewhat similar to that of Homer Simpson.
THX's body and behavior are continuously monitored at work for irregularities that cause him to be arrested and imprisoned for reconditioning. He's not only dominated by machines, but by the incompetent, irresponsible bureaucrats who treat him like one of Dr. Moreau's things. Later in the movie, THX escapes and the rulers eventually allow him to get away because the cost of catching him and the value of him, the cost is too much for what value he gives the society, so they let him go. In THX, a future state uses elaborate technology to exert control on citizens. As in 1984, the characteristics of the machine, logic, order, and lack of emotion, extend to the populace, creating a regimented society where thoughts and actions are regulated, nonconformists are suppressed, and people have numbers, not names. Opposite this, the film elevates the unique individual, the outsider, the rebel. Unlike 1984, THX ends with the rebellious hero escaping to nature, where nature symbolizes freedom and something outside contrivance, artifice, and technology. Moving on to the 1980s, the expansion of media technology along with network computers offered authoritarian governments the potential for godlike omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. In science fiction, television and virtual reality as technologies of social control can be traced to Huxley's Brave New World in which feelies allow the society's drugged and genetically manufactured population to experience the sensation of actors projected on a large screen. Using electrode stimulation, feelies obliterate self-awareness and divert attention from real-world problems by substituting an artificial reality. In this sense, feelies anticipate the pacifying negative consequences of virtual reality and media culture elaborated in later science fiction, such as David Cronenberg's 1983 film Videodrome and the Matrix series. 
In Videodrome, which influenced later movies such as The Ring and recently Pulse, television broadcasts are embedded with hallucination-inducing signals that become the instrument of mind control. Writer-director David Cronenberg imagines television as an information virus that literally infects the brain, transforming and controlling people. So we'll look at a clip from Videodrome. A sleazy television station owner, played by James Woods, has already been infected by the Videodrome television signal. He sees hallucinatory visions that reflect a horrifically literal interpretation of the connection between humans and media technology. The inventors of Videodrome want to use Woods' television station, Channel 83, to start broadcasting the Videodrome signal and thus control the rest of the population. Yes, Deborah Harry, lead singer of the band Blondie. Pulsing television screen shows huge female lips that swell, protrude, and then envelop Woods, literalizing his total domination by media technology that uses sexuality to compel attention. In Videodrome, the mind control technology is a product of collaboration between the military and a large corporation, the so-called military-industrial complex. As warfare has become more and more technologically driven, scientific, corporate, and military interests have become inseparable. Much of the research and development of 21st century technologies, such as artificial intelligence, the Internet, and robotics, were originated and funded by the American military, often through the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. 
Created in 1958 to avert a weapons gap with the Russians, DARPA, which currently disperses over $2 billion annually to corporate, government, and university researchers, remains America's most powerful force driving technological change through weapons and surveillance development. In 1960, DARPA elaborated a decentralized bomb-proof computer network to connect military-related researchers. This system led eventually to the Internet. As the Internet exploded into a chaotic cornucopia of entertainment, pornography, commerce, communication, and information, network data collection reflected that growth, reflecting, re replicating invisibly like a virus. Cyberspace is also a database. One attempt to exploit that database was the Experimental and Controversial Terrorist Information Awareness Program, or TIA, proposed by DARPA. It would use massive integrated databases to draw conclusions about an individual's likelihood to commit a crime or an act of terrorism by merging existing records from government, entertainment, financial, corporate, educational, medical, telephone, email, and credit card sources. Looking for suspicious patterns, the government's snooping eyes would compare billions of transactions and detailed traces of your life to the profiles of terrorists, criminals, and political radicals, or whomever else they deem undesirable. The goal is to preempt antisocial behavior. While Congress stopped the implementation of TIA in 2003, it did permit continuation of technology development. These systems combine big businesses' desire to identify and exploit consumers with the government's desire to identify and control criminals, terrorists, and even political opponents. Reflecting the paranoid post-9-11 atmosphere and the growth of cyberspace as a database, Minority Report, directed by Steven Spielberg and based on a 1956 Philip K. Dick story, dramatizes the oppressive social consequences when network surveillance is so elaborate that crimes are stopped before they happen and pre-criminals are jailed for their presumed intentions. Detective John Anderton, played by Tom Cruise, oversees the pre-crime unit, which employs three genetically mutated precognitive humans or precogs. They float like cadavers in an amniotic fluid-filled pool, their brain waves monitored by a computer. Let's see. There's a clip from Minority Report. And this shows how the system works. When the oracles dream of a crime about to happen, the perpetrator is identified by his name on a red ball. The thoughts of the precogs are transduced into images. Using hologram projectors built into his gloves, Anderton stands at a video screen and physically orchestrates like a musical conductor the stream of precog-generated thought images. He scans for clues as to the location of the about-to-be-committed crime. 
Cops then swoop down and arrest the would-be lawbreaker before the killing, robbery, or rape can happen. Chief Anderton fights crime with technologized dreams. Minority Report also satirizes propagandistic television commercials that exploit citizen fear. Inevitably, the precogs predict that Anderton will murder someone. To avoid imprisonment, he flees. His efforts to hide reveal an almost transparent society. Cameras and retinal scanners watch as people get on and off trains, enter and exit their homes, walk to work. In this world of ubiquitous observation and retinal identification, people's eyes are the windows not only to their souls, but to their security status and consumer preferences. The surveillance society shown in Minority Report only slightly exaggerates our own developing world of network monitored and highly computerized surveillance. So uh, let me move on. 
and this is uh, showing that world. He's in a mall. In order to hide and avoid the identifying retinal scans, Anderton res resorts to getting an eye transplant from an underground surgeon with a bad sense of humor. Cops are now doing a saturation sweep of the city, checking apartment buildings for Anderton. Those spiders are seeking warm bodies to do eye scans and identify Anderton if possible.
As the all-seeing system proliferates, most citizens do not give it much attention out of apathy, ignorance, or hope that these technologies will somehow guarantee their security. In Minority Report, the most frightening and intrusive method of surveillance involves robotic spiders that invade homes, seek warm bodies, and scan eyeballs. Residents are so agreeable to these spidery interruptions that arguments, meals, and sex are routinely stopped for the eye scanning and then resumed immediately afterwards. Preemptive law enforcement conflicts with civil rights in the film, offering concrete examples of the dangers inherent in this policy. In Anderton's case, the precog's prediction that he will murder a man he does not know eventually happens through a course of action motivated by their prediction. This pokes a hole in the integrity of pre-crime as the prediction of Anderton's crime actually causes the crime to occur. The provocative nature of preemption and its dangerous potential can be compared to the questionable policy of preemptive military attacks that became the stated foreign policy of the United States in 2003. Yet the Iraq War, according to a recent intelligent estimate, created Iraq as the new center for terrorist training and recruiting while helping generate an increase in terrorism worldwide, the exact opposite of the policy's objective. Despite the happy Hollywood ending, Minority Report reveals the horrors of saturation surveillance and preemption. The dystopian world of this film is caused by the gradual erosion of personal privacy and freedom rather than by terrorist weapons of mass destruction. The rise of omniscient surveillance and information collection is driven, however, to some extent by the private citizen's desire for security, control, and comfort. The 2006 movie V for Vendetta poses that idea directly. Based on a comic book written by Alan Moore and illustrated by David Lloyd, V for Vendetta centers on a ruthless revolutionary named V battling a techno-totalitarian British government run by the maniacal dictator named Suttler. Disguised with a mask and cloak, V's identity is a mystery impenetrable to the city's ubiquitous security cameras. V wants to destroy the brutal Nazi-like Norsefire whose regime resembles not only the fictional dystopias of George Orwell's 1984, but the current surveillance-addicted governments of England and the United States. In this opening scene, V attacks Old Bailey, the central criminal court building in London. So be our last clip.
And that's the dictator Sutler. And this shows the North Fire regime meeting to spin the attack in some positive manner. And finally, in this excerpt, um, V, in order to speak directly to the people, takes over a government television station.
V for Vendetta is a story about taking responsibility, about how dignity and freedom begin in your own mind and can never be fully taken, only given away. This resonates outside the story's political context. We, through voting or apathy, perpetuate an agenda of total surveillance, conformism, political correctness, and family values. Dystopian science fiction, like 1984 and V, warn us that our technology and our governments are not easily controlled. Science fiction urges us to wake up, to ask questions. Science fiction cautions society not to embrace or assume the inevitable spread of techno-totalitarianism without fully understanding the consequences of doing so and also helps us to envision those consequences. At its most pessimistic, science fiction paints a repulsive picture of a future world where technological social controls get out of hand and dominate all aspects of human behavior. But science fiction does more than simply reflect cultural despair and technophobia. It criticizes governments whose rule is supported by weapons, corporate greed, macho militarist posturing, warmongering, and religious propaganda. In contrast to apathy and surrender to the status quo, science fiction often argues for a progressive political agenda while our science fiction often exhibits a dark vision of a techno-dystopian future, it encourages us to shift the dynamic and create a better world. So that's it for today. Thank you. And I would uh, take questions if you want. Thanks. We have a few minutes for some questions. I have a microphone. If you have a question, raise your hand so that everyone can hear. Not everybody at the same time, please. <laughs> just wanted to add a little bit of trivia. Um, John Hurt, who plays the Chancellor in V for Vendetta, also plays Wilson in the 1984 movie. Good point. That was good. Thank you. There is two versions of 1984. You're referring to the uh, version, right. There was uh, another one made earlier. Did you like that movie? Pretty good? Yes, sir? Anybody else? Okay. Well, if there's no questions, um, we can I will head into the cold day. Yes, <laughs> we'll be around. Um, on behalf of the library, I want to thank everybody for coming. Um, I do want to remind you that um, November 8th at 1 p.m. is our next event for 1984. We have a panel discussion about community and the nature of community in a monitored world. Um, I would also like to take a second and present Dan with a little gift on behalf of the college. And uh, uh, thank you all for coming, and we'll see you again. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.